everyone, welcome to the Sliving with Sickle Cell podcast. My name is Barbara Biosa and I am a sickle cell warrior, CEO and fashion designer of luxury women's wear clothing brand Dimabai and founder of the Gideon's Treasure Foundation. And I am your host today. From the Queen Paris Hilton, Sliving means slaying and living your best life. We all deserve to do this. I'm here to bring you all the fabulous tales, the struggles and the triumphs of living with sickle cell anemia and running a business with a disability. There has been many highs and many lows, but I think it's important to share your stories and journey. We will be discussing some important topics and inviting some amazing guest speakers to share their experiences and their journey. This podcast is dedicated to help spread awareness of sickle cell anemia, uplift and build a community of ambitious people who may have a physical or emotional challenges that make being an entrepreneur or following your dreams that much harder. Hey June, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Barbara? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to share your incredible journey and story with our listeners. Please start by telling me a bit about yourself, your background and your upbringing. Right. Okay. Um, Well, thank you, first of all, for inviting me to your amazing podcast. I've been (laughs) really, really drilling into it and enjoying um, the last two episodes. So um, about me, so um, upbringing, I I was born in London. Um, My parents took us back to Nigeria, so I grew up there. I'm from Nigerian heritage uh, Mm -hmm. and um, currently live in London, lived in London for many years, really. Um, Mm -hmm. So London's home. Um, And um, when when I was born, I mean, this is Mm -hmm. stories that my parents tell me, so... I can't vouch for it, but I believe them. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm one one of four, which is mm-hmm. the sort of um you would I mean I would call it the the perfect science example when when they yeah. teach you about sickle cell trait. So I've got three siblings and I'm the second. Mm-hmm. And um when I was born, uh my my mom was living in South London at the time. My parents were living in South London, but my dad wasn't in London, he he was actually mm-hmm. in Paris working. Oh, and um, she she said that labor came. I was at mm-hmm. probably about 10 months in, which mm-hmm. has sort oh. of given me a level of curiosity as to whether there's some form of link to post-term babies. I, I don't know, ah, but she said I was yeah. 10 months in and probably almost clocking into 11 months. And she said, this wow, child has to come out. Want, yeah. You didn't want yeah. to leave. You were too comfortable yeah. in there. <laughs> yeah. So she was having a little dinner and then labor started and she was, um, she went to guys at the time in, in, um, in London bridge. Mm-hmm. And, um, given that I was postum baby, apparently I came out quite slimy and disgusting. Like she would say, <laughs> I had like green and yellow type, Oh my slime God. on my skin and she was like what is this <laughs> and the midwife at the time was like no it's it's fine and you know obviously you know the liquid that holds the baby has mm-hmm. obviously you know expired so she's gonna end oh. up beautiful 
So <laughs> your mom was like, uh. my mom was like, uh. now she looks at me now. She's like, imagine that skin and this skin. It's it's just a bit of a paradox. But basically, she's um. So everything was going well, and um, mm-hmm. I think she would say three to six months. She can't really say, but three to six months into being an infant, um, mm-hmm. I was um. She said I would cry quite a lot and she wasn't a new mom because I wasn't the first Mm. child. So she was like, it just sounded quite distressing, you know, her baby crying. She said I would change her nappies and I would feed you. So I knew you weren't hungry and you weren't like uncomfortable. And there was just this long period of lots of distress so I think probably about six to eight seven months I don't know into being an infant she thought you know I'm just gonna go check um because she said she had gone back to the hospital to go is there anything wrong with this child and they went no yeah and um someone said to her oh have you I think it was a friend have you tested your Mm -hmm. your baby for um and at the time obviously in the 80s (laughs) weren't even like you know um mm. screening for babies and you know the newborn screening yeah. etc that didn't exist in the 80s i'm 40 by the way so um <laughs> so apparently um it was at that point she then insisted on ha- having genetic testing for me and it would appear that okay. um obviously the news broke that i was um born with sickle cell um, the SS oh, yeah. genotype. So I think that's when obviously it dawned on her that this was going to be the the time of a very long, painful, you know, um, parenting of this sick child. And yeah. um, it would appear that all those nights that I was quite distressed and crying, that I was actually in pain and sickling. Pain. So, yeah. um, so that's how my mom found out by chance, basically. At this point, I think she had already started trying for my younger sister. And um, basically, all of my siblings are sickle cell free. So um, I think uh, two have got Trey and one. Trey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my sister's got, she's AA. So, um, so growing up was interesting because mm-hmm. at the time there was nothing. There was nothing, no support. Um it was very much uh, support from family, obviously my parents, yeah. um, sometimes my teachers who got who got the, the, the condition, mm-hmm. um, didn't really have lots of resources. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was it was quite an interesting childhood. I missed school quite a lot, as you can imagine, yeah. because if I'm ever um, in a crisis, I would end up being in hospital. And that would impact my education. So I was always playing yeah. catch up. Um, and then got a little bit of like ex- extra classes. Uh, my my parents would like pay for a teacher to come and like help me catch up privately at home. And oh, there was a yeah. tiny bit of homeschooling as well. Um, sometimes I would be writing like tests in hospital, which was quite interesting. Um, well, just well, to ensure that I wasn't up, like, yeah. yeah, academically behind. And that used to really stress me out as a child because there was like incredible pressure to attain you know education but then mm-hmm. you're dealing with this burden of you know which other children or many children didn't necessarily deal with yeah so that that's a bit of my of my upbringing um and then I kind of went into my teenage years and started to really understand my triggers and my body yeah. and 
Um, I, th- I think I would say my teenage years it, were quite interesting because you go into university and first year is a bit of a mad house and everyone's like, yeah. you know, you know it's, <laughs> it's freedom to drink and go partying and just yeah. like have a great time and you live forget your best that. Life. Live your best life, basically. <laughs> so there was, there was lots of crises, obviously, at the time. And then I kind of started to go into my early 20s and thought I can't, I need, I need to get serious with my health. Yeah. So, so the awareness started to grow, that self-awareness, mm-hmm. researching, studying my body, uh, journaling on my triggers, sort of trying yeah. to keep a sort of sickle cell diary to understand the patterns and what kept me well and what yeah. kept, what, what would trigger. Obviously, not every crisis was avoidable, but yeah. – um, Half of the time, if I did what I was meant to do, then things will, you know, things will go yeah, really well. Yeah. So, so yeah, that that that's a little small bit of um, yeah. And thank you for sharing. And it's so true about the triggers because yeah. you you start to learn it, especially when it's a chronic illness, and mm-hmm. you you live with it. You get to learn like what are certain things that are triggering this. What are certain things that are if I I can do to maintain and have like a well, kind of like a healthiest version of the life that we can with this mm-hmm. condition. And so with your, I know you spoke about your mom, how she that she found out because you kept having crisis as a child, as a baby. Mm-hmm. Was that the first time she kind of knew about sickle cell or did she have anyone else in her family? Did she know like she had trait or anything? Was it like a very like, like, oh my God, like, I've never heard of this and I don't literally <laughs> I have no yeah. idea. Yeah, literally. So she, so I was the sort of um rude awakening that this mm-hmm. this she had the trait and my dad had the trait. Obviously they had never tested it. They heard they they heard about sickle cell from friends and yeah. you know, um yeah, mostly family friends, people we know, but no one in my family had it. Yeah. Not that we were aware of, not maternal or paternal. Like, I think I'm probably the first, um, first ever person in my entire lineage, from what I know, oh, wow. that has sickle cell. But I now have a cousin, maternal cousin from my mom's, obviously my mom's um, brother's daughter. She's got, so mm-hmm. it's just the two of us juggling with it. But yeah, it was, oh, okay. it was, it was basically a rude awakening. Um, and, um, at the time, there was nothing. I mean, people complain yeah. about how there's absolutely no resources and the inequity of access, treatment, support. It was worse. It was mm-hmm. worse for children who grew up in the 70s and the 80s. And and so perspective is really important. I know we're still yeah. sort of far behind the sickle cell when it comes to access and treatment or cure or medicines but I would say we're we're very much in a better place than we were when we were quite younger so a lot of it was self-taught a lot of it was Mm -hmm. trial and error um my mom was desperate at some point she you know she would consider alternative therapies I used to remember like this doctor who was she was practicing Western medicine, but she was also like trying out like the Chinese herbs and all this oh, nonsense. Yeah. And, and my mom would bring all this <laughs> weird 
sticks and herbs and branches and put them in hot water and I was forced to drink and I'm like this is disgusting and it was just like why am I going through this you know and then Mm. someone would say oh she needs to try this particular food I'm like what is this is this actually edible like things that I didn't really understand and then I had something called pika as a child as well so I used to get um I used to crave apparently pika is is something that most children in sickle cell would experience once in their lives. It's a sort of um, crave for non-edible elements. So, um, and apparently it's linked to a sort of deficiency in the body where you you might be, I don't know, deficient in a particular nutritional element and you crave the non-edible parts of it. So um, people would eat cotton, for example, or or, uh, chew your clothes or eat chalk or... (laughs) Or, or go to somewhere that's quite dusty and take a little bit of it and and I used to do some really oh weird god, stuff like that yeah, yeah. like <laughs> my mom oh my god it's crazy you're saying that because I've never heard someone else like say this this was a thing that single cell people do but when I when I was younger I remember do you remember like um chairs and they had yes. the inside of the little yes the <laughs> I remember I used to chew on it I know <laughs> Oh my god, I never knew it was linked to this. I just thought I was a weird child. Or like Yeah. I mean Google it. It's called Pika, P I C A. Wow. I I think my siblings thought like what on earth is is she doing? Because I I, there was this little crack on the wall. So it used to like bring out a little bit of like the concrete and I would go and just like put my tongue on it and literally, <laughs> and, and at a certain point I would use my pencils to just get a little bit oh more dust. Oh my God. Yeah. And it was later my dad said, this has to stop. And then he sort of paved it and painted it. And I was like, really like, oh, my sister. <laughs> yeah, he was like, no, this ain't, this <laughs> ain't it. has gone, Yeah. <laughs> And it was like talking to my consultant about it. He was like, "Yeah, that's pretty much normal. It's wow. it's it's a yeah." I'm literally yeah. learning something like new that <laughs> right now, and it's like so interesting because when I was younger, I just thought it was like I don't know. I never thought it was connected to that, but it was. I remember yeah. distinctively like with those ripped chairs, and then they had like a cushiony thing on the inside, and I'd be yeah. like. <laughs> Yeah, so I weird. know. And I, I always know. like bite my nails. I don't know if that's still part of it. Like that's, but, that's um, still a part of it. Yeah, I used to bite my nails, and I see. I, I used to chew on the color of my uniform as well, which was just strange. Oh um, but um, yeah, growing up was was interesting. But I would say people talk about um, what the impact is on you as a child you know, growing mm-hmm. up with sickle cell, but we forget yeah. the impact on our siblings and our parents as well. Yeah. Because I remember m- my mom had to like, just give up a large chunk of work and look after me. Like, yeah. you know, she used to work at home and she, she was into fashion like you. So she, mm-hmm. she would, she had her whole sort of fashion designers and they would oh, make hats nice. and yeah, she was really into lots of stuff. So that, that was, that was good in a way that she was yeah. always at home but then it was my siblings as well. The the tension is always on the sick one, isn't it? And yeah, um, sometimes I, I mean, I'm blessed to have amazing siblings who get it now. And yeah. you know, there's still that sort of protective element 
Yeah. Of, oh, I hear the weather's like minus three. Are you covering up? Yeah. And I was like, I'm 40. You better stay at home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's really warm. We've been hydrating. And there's still a little mm-hmm. bit of that with my yeah. older oh. and younger siblings. But yeah. I know, obviously, the impact of giving one child the attention constantly, being in hospital and, you know, saying, oh, she can't do this and she can't do chores because there was that whole cotton wool over eyes type approach. But um, I think think it's something for for awareness that we need to think about our siblings and our families and those that sickle cell impact as we grow up because yeah it's so true yeah yeah it's a huge impact and it's um like you said there's there's certain sacrifices and Mm -hmm. stuff that they have to do I know like having crisis at like 4 a.m in the morning and having to like wake them up Mm -hmm. and they're always there and staying over at the hospital and stuff and I know because it's your family so they love you and like for them it's like you know, it doesn't, it's not like a burden, but at the same mm-hmm. time, it is, it is a lot to, sure. to deal with and stuff. And cause you said you were the sec, the second child. So was there a kind of sense of fear for your parents when they had like two other children? Yeah. So I, I think my, so my mom had us year on year, which is, which is interesting. So I think she was just, I'm just going to just get, get all of them out and just be done and <laughs> over and done with this. <laughs> So it's, it's a year basically between all of us. So oh, I think wow. she had already started trying for my sister when oh, I was six okay. months or seven months when she realized that I had sickle cell. So with her, it was fine. I mean, she was the one who came out trait free. Okay. And then um, at that point she said, well, I've got three kids and that will be it. And then two years later, she tried for my brother, my youngest okay. brother. And he he was fine. He came out trait free, yeah. but I think that was the risk she took. She actually took the risk with my brother at the time. Yeah, um, uh, my youngest brother. But yeah, I think uh, every. I mean, I'm glad none of my siblings have it because yeah, I know definitely. many people who have two or three siblings with sickle cell. I can't imagine the burden that parents yeah. and, and those kids and individuals could be dealing with you know I mean just having me alone in the family was too much for you know the family yeah. at, at times and and I know that's still sort of lingering in people's minds but um yeah having two or three siblings would have been yeah well, uh, it would have been yeah. too much yeah yeah so um I'm, I'm just I'm just I'm just grateful to God I was just me and maybe I was chosen because my my parents always say maybe you're the strongest and sometimes yeah. we look at you know people who have conditions or long-term conditions or disabilities as fragile but there's a reason I always believe there's a reason why you know um we come into this earth you know mm-hmm. our ikigai like the Japanese would say our ikigai is finding being able to wake up in the morning to find your purpose and understand why things have happened to you and how you can turn Mm -hmm. those experiences into meaning yeah and for me maybe sickle cell is my ikigai and I've been reading about it and trying to understand what my purpose in life is and maybe if I didn't have sickle cell that could have been a little bit more of a what am I really doing and yeah. I've always thought about that and reflected. If I didn't have sickle cell and I was a healthy, really healthy woman, would I mm-hmm. would I have a cause, a passion to fight for? Would yeah. I? I don't know. Question mark. But it's something I reflect on all the time. 
Yeah, no, I love it. And I actually really believe that. I really believe like there is purpose in the pain. Um, what are some of the challenges that you faced um, with sickle cell and how are you over, able to overcome them? Mm. Challenges, Barbara. <laughs> I can't just start. Um, uh, the major challenges. ones, I know. The major ones. There's so many of them. It's like my whole life, basically. <laughs> Um, challenges. So I think the main one would be most, most people living with sickle cell would say is the lack of awareness. And Mm -hmm. that's always a fight. Um, it's still a fight still today. It's the lack of awareness with people who should know. It's the lack of awareness with people who don't know. Um, and I think that manifests itself in many ways, maybe in care as well. So, Mm -hmm. The frustration comes from, you know, knowing that you you were born with this thing. It was no fault of yours. Yeah. You, no one asked to be brought into this world. And then you're made to almost feel a sense of shame. That is the bit I struggle with. Yeah. And um, we don't shame people with cancer. We don't shame people with MS. We don't shame people with diabetes. There's so much empathy and awareness and so much, so much compassion. And, you know, I don't know, there's just a a world out there that is completely different from people with sickle cell. But then that sense of shame that, Oh, you know, They've got this black disease, which is a term I've heard many times. And then you come into hospital, you're in excruciating pain. And then people who should be looking after you, making you feel better, because that's what they've come into the profession to do, are not doing it. And I'm not saying all of them. And I think that's where my major, major frustration has come from. Mm -hmm. Now, personally speaking, I have been lucky to sometimes experience good care but there are times when things would have been absolutely dire and I really reflect on the people who have maybe left this world because there was negligence or a lack of you know attention to their care and their treatment and that really bothers me yeah I know people as well living with sickle cell who have not had great care and year on year it's negative experiences it's a sense of shame it's a sense of well I'll rather not bother um because I'm I'm not heard or my voice isn't heard or I'm not listened to those responsible for our care are Mm -hmm. sometimes the people who maybe sometimes cause psychological harm because it might not be physical harm but psychological harm but um I know that we are we're all, I mean, I know you're doing it, I'm doing it, many of us are doing it, raising awareness, you know, getting involved, trying to have a voice and um, hopefully people who are responsible for our care and people who are maybe one way or the other impacted by sickle cell can start to understand really how this impacts individuals who live with it, their yeah. families and those who love them. Um, so I would say for me, that has been the greatest challenge. I, um, I'm very well supported by 
the specialist, so my hematologists or my mm -hmm. hematologist nurses, etc. They're, they're great. And I think there's always a sense of comfort knowing that, thankfully, sickle cell is not an ultra-rare disease where we don't have specialists who actually understand mm -hmm. the condition because that would have been like for me a double whammy um but to know that yeah this lack of awareness is predominantly by the generalist in medicine mm -hmm. or healthcare um it is it, it's not comforting but it's i'm just glad that we've got specialists so i take comfort from that um yeah and then i would say Personally, some of the challenges I have dealt with, um, whether it's physical or mental, it's been it's been all my life really. So um, I I've been diagnosed with a vascular necrosis, uh, quite severe mm -hmm. on my left hip, um, wow. growing growing on my right hip, and it's getting to the point where I probably need to have surgery quite quite quickly. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. so. Um, I got my diagnosis probably about six, seven years ago. Um, but prior to oh. that, you know, it seemed like everything was fine. I'm quite an active person. Um, yeah. And very much a career girl, although I wish I wasn't. I really, yeah. I really do take a lot of comfort <laughs> from the soft life. I wish I was a kept woman, but um, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm, I'm a proper career girl. So I'm a, I'm a very much active person. I've always been active from. From, yeah. the, from my uni days and uh it didn't mm -hmm. it didn't really manifest the symptoms of a vascular necrosis until okay yeah has it affected because it, it's in your hip so has it affected yeah. any way you walk because i know yeah. I, I i have never kind of noticed it as much mm -hmm. when i've met you but like is it is it something that's been affecting like with your daily activity or like the way you walk or yeah so um what i have the way it's happened it just came very sudden the, the pain and mm, i know yeah. a lot of people have had it had pain for for years but mine just came up quite sudden and i'm thinking i think wow. this is avn uh because i've heard yeah. people who have it and they describe the pain in a very on on sickling way it's not sickling the hip yeah. it's it's a sort of yeah weird bone pain that you can't necessarily touch it and sometimes the pain relief doesn't even go close um so for me i had to just go straight to say can i get it checked and in my mind barbara mm -hmm. yeah, i thought it would good. be like oh yeah your early stages of it and at that time it was like your proper late stages of avn I'm thinking, wow. okay. So oh it means I'd probably had it since I was maybe a young girl because to get to stage yeah. three, a point of having an MRI scan was a bit like, yeah. so I've been living with this for a long time and wow. I've only just yeah. started to get pain, you know, all of a sudden. So um, at the moment, uh, my mobility is all right. But my mm -hmm. back is overcompensating for the hip, oh, which has yeah. sort of arched my 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 spine a little bit. So at the moment, it's a lot of back pain. It's uh, discomfort mm -hmm. sleeping, which is kind of impacting my quality of sleep, sleep um, yeah. and in turn impacting my quality of life. Um, 
but because I keep active, I walk, I stretch, I try mm-hmm. to do yoga and just ensure that I'm constantly, you know, an active person. I'm not finding it difficult yeah. to walk yet, but I'm finding the mm-hmm. impact on my sleep to be quite like heightened. So I think that's where, um, and obviously if you're not sleeping, you know what that can do for you. So yeah, of course, especially when we already have like fatigue mm-hmm. as one of the anemia. <laughs> yeah. So sleep is yeah, and it's um, and so with your the hematology specialist, have they said like what things you can do to kind of ease the pain, mm. or is it just surgery that they usually suggest? So yes, yeah, so obviously hematology teams are specialists in blood, so they would refer to mm-hmm. orthopedics. So I have been seen by an okay. orthopedic uh, team, and basically they've told yeah. me what my options are. I think for me the option is really um, total hip replacement, which I've kind of grappled with <laughs> for years thinking, I yes. can't believe I'm going to actually lose a part of myself and get these you know, metallic yeah. things added to my hip. But I mean, it's it's part of sickle cell. You you kind of have to process it, accept it, mm-hmm. deal with it, and just try to see the positive. Really, um, so I will be getting a, a total hip replacement on both hips. Uh, it'll probably start with mm-hmm. um, the one that's quite progressed first. Um, in the meantime, yes, they did give advice on you know trying to do some low impact exercises, ensuring that I don't put mm-hmm. on weight. Um, okay, talk okay. about if you are trying to have a baby, you need to be, you know, um, aware of that, the weight and how that could impact progression mm-hmm. of yeah, the ABN. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. Ensuring that obviously I'm quite active because that would then lead to better recovery outcomes with the muscles, etc. Um, yeah. Don't do anything crazy uh, that would then, you know, put you at risk of falling and then you crack the hip or something. So, oh yeah, it's been gosh, very much maintenance yes. since yeah. for the last seven years. It's been, and I try not to take pain relief because it, it's, it just doesn't do me any good personally. Um so I I get a lot of massages. So it's very much mm-hmm. you know concentrate on the hips. I get Thai oil massage, um, hot stones. I see an osteopath. I've seen an osteopath for the last five years. She does a lot of work on me. I get stretches. So a lot of alternative therapies have kind of supported kind using of help, heat yeah. therapy, certain types of pillows, and yeah. So so that has helped. Um, but you get to a point where okay. You have to just deal with this now and just, you know, book an appointment and go see a surgeon and get yeah. it replaced. So I think I'm getting to that point now. Um, other challenges that I'm dealing with is I also have a formal diagnosis of sickle cell retinopathy in the eyes. Um, so retinopathy <laughs> is when you sickle in your eye vessels and it could potentially, potentially result to sight loss. Um, so no. I do have, uh, retinopathy in both eyes. So I'm seeing in specialist care and more fields. Um, and basically there's no way to avoid it. The only way to avoid it is don't get a crisis. So it doesn't get worse. Um, but so it doesn't, yeah. yeah. 
Because I know, and I'm so sorry to hear that, because I know like one of the major things, like the checks that we do is they always check the back of the eye uh-huh. because it is something that does come with sickle cell. So is that is that something that they've kind of discovered during those checks? And then you said like, because I, I don't really know too much about it. And uh-huh. so I'll let you like explain a bit more. But yeah. um, it's like, is it just where it's like a sickling in that part of the eye yeah. that causes it? or is- Yeah, so... So, yes, you're right. I think everyone with sickle cell needs to check their eyes um, mm-hmm. constantly um, yeah. because mine was off the high street annual check with my optician mm. and they had sort of said, June, there's something at the back of your eye and you need to go check it out. And I've just sort of like, oh, it's fine. So mm. for five years, he, yeah. and then he said, you need to go check it out. And I sort of didn't sort of, you know, when you just think you're dealing with a lot, I can't. And then at this point, he then yeah. personally did a referral to Moorfields. Mm-hmm. And um, at that point, I had to go in anyway. And that was when they went, okay, yeah. this is the first time you're getting specialist care. And I said, yes. Have you seen an optician when you were younger? Because the scarring on, at the back of the eye seems like an old oh scar. Gosh. So it could be potentially scar. when you were a teenage girl. So I'm like. No, um, I don't know. <laughs> so basically, um, sickling, sickle cell um, affects every part of the body. A lot of people don't know yeah. that, but it does. Everywhere there is a cell, everywhere there, mm-hmm. there's a flow of blood, um, you could sickle in your head, in your eyes, etc. So it would appear yeah. that um, from what the consultant was saying that I had sickled when I was much younger and um, – sickled in the eye specifically and that had caused a scar that was probably just on the edge of my retina um mm-hmm. and basically what that means is you have to get regularly checked um and if you start seeing yeah. the red floaters um coming up in your eyes then mm-hmm. that could be potentially um a sign of visual loss so that wasn't nice to hear um, so I got the formal diagnosis and they showed me the scarring yeah. on both eyes and the pictures and I mean, it's what is a world-class service. So you see everything and, yeah. um, the result was at some point you have to have laser surgery. Um, but at this point we don't need to do surgery until things have become exceptionally bad. So, um, yeah. I've just been on the follow-up and what they say is do not, do not get a crisis so it doesn't get bad because obviously if you get a crisis you could sick on the eye <laughs> so yeah telling someone do not get a crisis i'm like <laughs> can we control like no. can we, control, no, can we control not getting a crisis is it something that could have been prevented if you had found out when you were no. younger or it's just something no. that it 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 is like if that happens, it's just there's yeah. no kind of. And then another thing that I I think when you mentioned about the neglect mm-hmm. in the hospitals, that's something that hematologists, the specialists should actually, because I think since I've been since I was a child, that was one of the things. I think it was either a yearly checkup, mm-hmm. and they've, I've been always, but and I had also glasses as well. But through my hematology specialist, there's always been doing like um. A check, yeah. Even when I was at North Mid and UCLH, yeah. So I feel like, why isn't that for every single patient? Yeah. Should be if they know that this is somewhere that could be affected. Because come on, site is 
this is something that and I think that every I know it's NHS but I think that every yeah um patient should be able to have that and have that access to check if it's something that could affect yeah. because it's a major part of quality of, of life, life of, yeah so yeah no I, I, to be fair to be fair many consultants will ask you when last you checked your eyes um when you go into your outpatients and they do ask me when because i had a, a a yearly eye check and I think for five years yeah. they kept saying there's something at the back of your eyes but we're just a high street optician you need to go into specialist care and for five years I ignored it but I've always mm-hmm. had an eye check I've always had a yearly eye check because my work is very much pressured and I work with yeah. lab, you know I work with some um, gadgets for very long hours yeah. and it's just something you because I get visually fatigued and I and I start thinking things are getting a bit blurred what is this and I think at that point yeah. I just thought you know what I'm just going to go to more fields and get this referral done and that's when I got the mm-hmm. diagnosis it wasn't a great day um yeah but yeah I, I I would say they usually ask the questions have you had a night check or opticians saying um the usual stuff, any sort of numbness in your in your in your in your ankle, how are your shoulders? Have you had any chest crisis? How is your breathing? So it's a sort of usual questions the hematologist yeah. would ask. But I think it's also a responsibility for patients to take ownership of their care as well, because obviously yeah. my hematologist is not going to force me to go to do my eye care. I need to book that myself. Yeah. Is yours a private hospital or are you with? No, I'm with the NHS, yeah. Because my thing has never been like, they would ask, Mm. but they always just book it. So I've never had that kind of like, oh, you should do this. And then you have to go off and do it yourself. It's always just been like, (laughs) yeah, you're lucky. (laughs) But it's like two different hospitals. That's why I was like. I don't know. It's always been kind of like a, a thing that I've just always remember doing. Like I did it a few months ago right. and it was through like my hospital, but they took me to another hospital. Like it was, a, I think, another one in King's Cross or something. Oh. I had to go and they checked. And I remember I drove and they put like yeah. I, like things in your eye. And they were like, you're not, meant to, yeah. you're not meant you're not to, meant to like, drive. Yeah. drive here. And I was like, oh. I know. <laughs> but yeah, so that's been a, a thing because I remember my, my mom um, – she had, I don't know, she, it was, she doesn't have glaucoma, but for mm-hmm. years she had to um, do tests and stuff. Yeah. And so because of the sickling, I was always uh, quite worried about that. Mm. And so I was always like, oh yeah, I have like the, the hospital always refers me to somewhere to, to do it. And, yeah. Um, but have you ever been prescribed like glasses or anything? Cause you know, you said like, so do you wear glasses. You wear? Yeah, I do wear glasses. Okay. Um, but that was just off the high street. <laughs> Um, okay. The optician, my opticians of the high street. Um, yeah. Apparently, my retinopathy is not impacting my vision this, yet. Okay, that's, Touch okay, that's wood. good. And it won't. It won't in yes. in Jesus' name. Yes. Like, I'm, yes. I'm yes. Um, it's just. It's just basically. Sh- I'm just short sighted, so I need uh, a little bit of okay. prescription. But I think yeah. your point, Barbara, about the care you're getting, and this is the problem as well. We talk about challenges. So some hospitals yeah. would will do standards at a very high level, I don't know. And then other yeah. and you're in London and you think, okay, you know, there's still that postcode lo- lottery type of variation in care of what people access. 
And, yeah. you know, some people say, oh, I get a sort of yearly MOT, you know, from my yeah. hematology consultants. And others say, wow. oh, I get, you know, I'm like, yearly MOT. That's great. I wish yeah, I could I'm like, <laughs> what, what hospital? <laughs> I know. I was like, okay. You know, some people go, oh, I already have this package and that package and I have access to yeah. this and others don't. So we're still at a point, even in London, where we've got, major specialist centers and care for sickle cell yeah. where there's still variation in care because I didn't have what you I didn't have what you had I it was just my optician that went well I'm going to refer you to more fields and off you go yeah and, that, and I think that's why I was kind of a little bit like oh wow because like I have like a not like I go to spec savers or something for yeah. glasses yeah. and that's like but the service that I've had with the hematologist and the eye thing has just been you know, through the hematology, like for anything, they always, and then sometimes I was always that patient, like even the things yeah. that weren't even related to sickle cell, I would sometimes nice. call my hemat, and some of them were like helpful, and then some of them were like, you know, call your GP. Oh, like, GP you? Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I just saw them as like, oh, I have, you're just my doctor, yeah. like I go for you for everything. Yeah. And because they always referred to other things, Specialist, like yeah. I always just kind of felt like, oh, they're like, that's my main care provider. Like I see them more than I see my GP. Same. So it's just that kind of, so then when you mentioned about the, the eye thing, I thought mm-hmm. that initially, oh, it's probably from the yearly kind of checks that we get as, so that's really bad that it's not the same level mm-hmm. and we're in the same city. It's like yeah. London's not even that big. You should I at know. least have the same level of care in the same city. Yeah. And I definitely wanted to touch point on um what you said about like, the treatment, how it's so different from, like you mentioned, diabetes and other kind of conditions. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a real problem mm-hmm. with, I think, with sickle cell. And then I wanted to ask more about, like, what did you mean with the the shame? Yeah. And is it just, is it stemmed from when you, like, the experience of how you've, what you've experienced going to hospital? Mm-hmm. Or where, does, where do you think that root comes from? Yes. So I, I made... And I'm sure other sickle cell patients mm-hmm. uh, will probably say this, and I've heard it in many yeah. support groups. Sometimes you turn up to accident and emergency, and you're made to feel mm-hmm. like, you know, even the sense of, oh, I'm sickling, and you know, I'm in a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you just take this pain away? Mm-hmm. There has always been an implicit sense of shame in even having to say I have sickle cell or I'm here for help and I haven't been made to feel that way you know when I'm when I'm probably being treated by my specialist but depending on yeah and I've got I've received care in New York I've received care in 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 -hmm. in Germany and I've also received care in London yeah I see the um I see the the sort of difference in um, empathy levels and compassion Mm -hmm. when it comes to different conditions. And I think that stems from a place of people can relate with specific conditions and people can relate with your pain or your suffering when they understand it. Mm -hmm. When there's a lack of understanding, then it's difficult to sort of lend that compassion and empathy and I say this because 
when I'm when I'm having a crisis and I'm in excruciating pain, and sometimes I say to maybe previous partners that I've been with, mm-hmm. um, it's like, oh, but you were well, you were well to two minutes ago. Like, don't it's say that to me. Yeah, you know. Oh, what are you going to do now? What you know? It's that sort of really sort of dismissive behavior, mm-hmm. and then like where is but then I say oh, oh I've got a migraine and then someone gets that they're like oh my god that must be so debilitating yeah. <laughs> are you serious oh, my migraine like, is like a, nothing compared to like <laughs> and it's like oh my god that is and then and I'm just like okay and and as, as I've just lived my life I've really began to understand that if people do not understand what you're going through mm. it's very difficult for them to under, to to lend compassion yeah i have broken an arm i've probably had uh, a few broken bones in my life and i've had a cast mm-hmm. and as 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 painful as broken bone is yeah. as painful as anything that has to do with a break in the bone it's excruciating but mm-hmm. for me I'm I'm with a cast and I'm not in a lot of pain and yeah. I walk into people are like oh my <laughs> god you, <laughs> yeah oh my god, I'm gonna help you with the door do you want a cup of yeah. tea to, anywhere you go on the tube they're like oh my god are you okay e- everyone's just like because once in a while one you know I'm, I'm sure one in five people would have had a broken bone or something yeah. so they get they get it, yeah. They get it. But then when when this crisis starts in the middle of you being in a wedding and yeah. you're dressed up with heels and you're yeah. out as a woman and you're, you know, you're looking very fly with red lipstick and everything, you walk into <laughs> people are going, what the hell are you doing here? What are you doing here? But then it's like, well, I've just come from an event yeah. and I've literally been through a crisis. Forget that I'm dressed yeah, this way. Like- God. Look at my clearly in pain. I'm mm-hmm. clearly upset. Yeah. Tears are falling down my very nice makeup and my newly fitted lashes. Don't judge the short black dress I'm wearing or the mm-hmm. heels or whatever. Yeah. Don't, don't look at the person. But then you get that look. And I've had that position, I've been in that position where I've had to come off an event into a straight yeah. into a the, the chance to go home and change and I've been looked at even by other people sitting there like what are you doing here you know because no one goes to any dressed like you've just come off a, a wedding party and um it's 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 interesting because at that point the nurse is looking at me and she could see that I was clearly in a lot of pain yeah. and you know, and she's like, um, "Okay, we're just gonna we're, we're just gonna do an, some obs for you and and see where things are." And it would appear that she did my sat my saturation levels, mm-hmm. and it would appear that my oxygen was around seventy percent. Oh god! So I was clearly having an acute chest yeah. syndrome, and people were just looking at me with judgmental looks, going, "Why are you here?" And within two minutes, they had triaged me, and I was being. And, you know, it's like, do not judge how this yeah. person assess them, understand that they're in pain. If yeah. they weren't in pain, they wouldn't be in A&E. Who wants to go into yeah. hospital? 
But that's where I've really struggled with. And I've tried to present lots of examples around the invisibility of this condition. And in many ways, you look at me, I, my eyes look fine, but there, there's, there are clearly issues with me. I walk well, like you said, you've looked at me and I don't limp or I don't use a stick or anything, but I've got, and you can, you can start to drill down into so many things that show how invisible this condition is. And people are still clearly not understanding that you could be living with something as bad as sicker cells, so life-threatening, and you can't see it. Yeah. You can't. You can't. You can't. And pain see, is, yeah. yeah. Pain is subjective. If someone says they're clearly in pain, then, then treat them like they were in pain because you can't measure pain. Yeah. You can't. You can't you can feel pain. It's only you who feels that pain. If I say, Barbara, I'm in pain today, you can't tell me, well, how do you know you're in pain? You can't ask yeah, that question. Yeah, there's no way to... And even at the yeah. hospital, you get the doctors actually, what's the, the one to 10? Because for them, it's like they, they can't measure. They can't see just yeah. from looking at you what your pain is. They actually have to like, what's your level? Like, how are you... Like, because... And then I think that's the annoyance of like, a lot of people with sickle cell when they go to the hospital and they're not believed or yeah. they're asking for certain medication and people are, mm. are calling them like, I don't know, druggies or like looking at them sideways. Cause it's like, how do you know? You, you actually don't know what I'm feeling. And there's, an, there's yeah. no way of you ever knowing how exactly. I'm feeling. So yeah. I think, yeah, that's, that's a major issue. And yeah. do you think, um, so, you know, you mentioned like, uh, the shame and like people not understanding. Do you think that can sometimes make people with sickle cell like not want to share or not want to say? And do you think that's why some people don't say anything because um, until it's like at that situation where they're having a crisis or until they're in like a really serious relationship? Yeah, I think the stigma comes from people's experiences and people's uh, backgrounds, whether it's social, cultural, religious you know and and there are there are parents who are clearly into their faith and there's a sense of denial because mm-hmm. the faith is what basically drives that denial no my child doesn't have sickle cell in jesus name yeah. you know like oh actually they do they, so don't say that <laughs> So there's that. There's yeah. of, there's a stigma of, oh, like, mm-hmm. if I do say I've got sickle cell, then I don't want your pity. And therefore, yeah. sort of hiding that shame that, you know, they don't want to be judged at work or judged at school or being treated differently, which is what. Yeah. And it's a valid expression because who wants to be treated differently? Who yeah. wants to be told? do PE you can't do you can participate in sports you can't you can't do this so you know I've had kids that I've mentored who have been completely excluded from going on school trips or traveling abroad oh. and you know and it's like why oh my god oh, it should be their choice not like anyone else's if they yeah so so I think there are maybe valid reasons why people express their own sense of shame and it mm-hmm. might not be shame but, you know, I, I don't want to be telling my stories. It's just I don't want to be t- I, I don't want to be treated differently. Yeah. There's a stigma from how we're made to feel when we go into hospital. And it's not just A&E. It could be 
people on the ward. It could be anywhere. There's a sense of the cultural bit as well, the cultural shame where generally black people mm-hmm. generally are brought up to be told that they are strong and, you know, yeah. I, I remember I said when I was young, I said, oh, I'm depressed. And my grandma will go, shut up. You're not depressed. <laughs> thought, have you eaten today? <laughs> Yes. Do you have a roof? Yeah. Don't ever say that again. You know, yeah. Down completely. Like what? Yeah, it's true. It's it's such a. It's definitely in a, especially in the African culture, and I yeah. think there's not even just a facade, but there's a kind of sense of like you have to. I feel like in the Nigerian cult community, I can't. I don't want to speak for all of Africa, but like in what I've experienced is like, there's this, you have, there's like this, you put, not a show, but it's like, you don't want to, it's like a weakness. You don't want to, oh yeah, my, like, (laughs) sometimes when I would go to hospital, like my mom wasn't always, she wouldn't tell people. (laughs) She wouldn't be like, oh yeah, my daughter's in hospital. We just wouldn't say anything because it's just like, why should they know? Exactly. So it's that kind of like, you kind of put on like this brave face, like everything's all good and everything's amazing. And yeah, and it, it's just, I think it's just like with African c- culture, sometimes there's a sense of competition. So if like, yeah. you know, like how I would say more European culture, people will be like, oh yeah, they'll tell everything, why well, this is happening and everything out to like the random nail, nail specialist or something. And they yeah. tell it to everyone and they're out. Whereas I think yeah. in African culture, we're kind of more like, hush, hush. We don't, we don't tell exactly. the bad things. We don't say anything about them. Yeah. Oh, we yeah. Point. I was I said, we. You're not allowed to. What? Ment- mental what? <laughs> what? Are you? I'm anxious. So I'm depressed. Yeah. Like, it doesn't exist for them. They're like, what? No. <laughs> up and deny it. And and then people forget that when when you've lived all your life, literally mm-hmm. all your life, with pain and trauma and suffering, that directly or indirectly it has an impact on your mental health yeah your mental health people generally and I don't know there's a shame as well from I wouldn't say just the black culture there's a general sense of shame that if you are accessing mental health services then there's something wrong with you no Mm. why do we put so much emphasis on our physical health we go to the gym we eat healthy We go for walks. We we want to look good. Our skin is popping. Everyone, but no, I, when it's when you're like, oh, I'm looking after my mental health. People look at you like, uh-huh. are you yeah. okay? And there's that thing in 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 most African cultures where you then start to say, actually, maybe I'm going to get up one day and actually address the trauma or the yeah. post- PTSD that I've been through, having sick or so, and then people are looking at you like. Well, you've dealt with this thing all your life, and you know why do you have to address it now? Because oh. I am looking at my mental health, yeah, and esteem that we should give to both physical and mental health yeah. because they are intertwined. We can't just say it's about physical, yeah. your mental health, mind. It's your, it's the intangible feelings you have, your sense of joy, your quality yeah. of life. So, um. So I think that's where most of the stigmas come from. It's social, it's religious, it's even economic. It's yeah. it's everywhere. 
it's everywhere, Barbara. The way, you know, people are made to feel at work, there's discrimination, people are sacked yeah. from just ha- Oh yeah. I've had some situations. Yeah. yeah. I would yeah. Have to bear your health status in another job when you know that you've been fired because you've met a threshold for your sick days. Yeah. You know, so oh, there's a lot of stigma that comes from this. Mm-hmm. That's so true. There, yeah. And even the point that you said about your grandma, like how um, she would be like, what do you mean that you're depressed? And I think it's that kind of um, sense of like the gratitude thing, like, oh, like you've got a roof over your head and stuff. And yes, that's great. And um, I'm someone who is very grateful and it it brings joy. But at the same time, you have to also be honest with yourself. Like you can't just be like you're having a bad day or something's you're having certain issues or this is something's too hard. And you're just like, oh, I I woke up this morning and the sun is shining because it's like, but you have to address these issues. And then even just sharing, you never know who you could help. Someone could hear your story and be going through the same thing. And that you just sharing kind of can impact them and really help them. So I think it's so important to address that. And then I think... And another reason, because it is a condition that main, mostly affects just like African Caribbean people and that sense mm-hmm. of like trying to always kind of think that everything is okay and we have to like, yeah. when our struggles can sometimes feel like, oh, it's a failure if we're struggling. It, it, yeah. Yeah. And so, and then I think that kind of hinders the awareness that we're, you know, we need to, sickle cell needs awareness in order to, for us to be able to have better experiences at work, at the hospital and this. So it's like, we, I think we need to get over that kind of sense of like showing a great picture and everything is great and not talking about mental health because it's like a sign of weakness and, and that, and just realize that no, it's actually strength. Sharing your stories is, is so much strength. And I, and I love that. And so, um, Tell us about your charity organization, Fit to Achieve, and your and everything you've been doing. And you're such an incredible advocate. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear more. <laughs> oh, thank you. So, um, Fit to Achieve came from a sort of um, reflection on life. It was basically mm-hmm. an epiphany because going back to what we talked about stigma, mm-hmm. I my my parents said that when I was growing up quite a lot, there was a lot of, well, just forget this one. She's, you know, because sickle cell was a death sentence at the time. It was like, oh, she's not going to make it past a certain age and there's no point wasting money on on taking her to private school or whatever. And and even down to like some family members, not very close family, but my dad would say some of you know, one or two people in his family said, you know, people, children who have sickle cell, just forget them. There's no point. You know, there was even a time I was considered um, to be put in a convent school so that I can just become a nun and stuff like that. Some really strange. Oh, gosh. Some of these, like, backdated, yeah. It was messed up. And then there was sort of like um, a sort of lack of hope from doctors as well even in this country at the time, because like, well, you know, and to be fair, it wasn't their, it wasn't their, um, it wasn't their fault because there was, a, the mortality, what's it called? Um, mortality rate? Like the, yeah, the life expectancy at the mm. time was quite, um, was quite short. Life expectancy for sickle cells probably better now, but then it was, it wasn't great. Yeah. And lots of young people died from it. So, 
having become the teenage girl mm-hmm. and sort of hearing those stories and sort of maybe unpicking that from even my life experiences going to school to college and people going, oh, like it was always like you can't you can't come up to, you can't add up to anything in your life basically yeah. it was the sort of, um narrative i was hearing but thank i'm very thankful for my dad because he always said to me never be never ever feel like you're different you're yeah. the same as never ever think you can't achieve or attain anything in your life yeah you will disease and you will overcome it and you will be anything you want to be as long as you put your mind to it and condition your psyche to understand that you are in control of sickle cell and sickle cell is unless we control you yeah so he me a lot growing up and then I got to in my life where I thought actually um I've done I've done a life audit and Mm -hmm. I think that good place to say that I've done really well yeah with the condition yes in, in relativity to this con- living with this condition and I then decided that I was going to extend that support and mentality and messaging and hope and narrative to other kids who might not necessarily be hearing the same yeah. narrative and that's when the notion of fit to achieve came up. And people always say, why did you? And I just thought, you know, it's all about the mental aspects. Yeah. If you believe yes. it, and that achieving spirit is in you, yes. then you can. And it's not just achieving like worldly things. It's being able to mm. achieve a fulfillment and purpose, yeah. and, you know, get to a point in your life where you go, actually, I'm content. Yeah. Um, so I I set up my foundation and um, my, um, yeah, people who are nearest and dearest to me came on board to become trustees and we had a vision to target those kids in real deprivation mm-hmm. in Africa who might not be, um, who might never in their, in their lifetime have an opportunity to, see what the other life could look like living with this condition. Yeah. So we targeted uh, people in rural areas, starting in Nigeria, um, children and families, raising awareness, yeah. educating them, getting events sorted. We were going to their communities so that they can see the sort of outreach. It's not like I'm in this five-star hotel in Nigeria, mm-hmm. sitting on my laptop and educating. <laughs> we were actually on the ground with those communities. Yeah. You know, Really quite sad circumstances that were try tr- were quite triggering for me because yeah. to live with sickle cell is quite it's it's quite it's quite a, a cross you carry yeah. in your life. I mean, you know it. It's it's not easy. Yeah, definitely. Live with sickle cell and then be in abject poverty. You know, is it was absolutely heart wrenching just hearing some of the stories. So I decided that I was going to continue on the journey. And for the last six years, five years, we've been active, you know, having events, yeah. education, getting warriors who are, you know, older to come and tell mm-hmm. their stories and inspire hope and inspire these kids to see that there's more to their life. Yeah. And I think many people have followed me on the journey and want to sort of jump on the bandwagon to just ensure that we are, Mostly pushing education, mm-hmm. awareness, yeah. empowerment. The three 
things I would say. There's a bit of aid as well because mm-hmm. you have to conceptualize what you're teaching. Yeah. So if I'm teaching them about malaria prevention and what that could do yeah. um, to trigger a sickle cell crisis, then I have to show them that these are the tools that will help you prevent malaria yeah. in a day to day life. So important, yeah. Well, better nutrition, then you almost have to conceptualize it with a food bag to say these are examples of specific foods you could eat. Yeah. You know, that's where the aid comes in as well. So, yeah, it's been a beautiful journey. Um, we're not big. We're still small. Mm-hmm. We're growing. But um, we are trying to focus on impact. Yeah. Um, and for me, I think that's that's where I'm sort of taking this to. Um, but, yeah, it's oh. it's been a journey and I'm glad that you know I'm in it yeah (laughs) it's so powerful and I love it and I love the concept of just um you know what you said about the mind training the mind having Mm -hmm. that mentality it's so important especially like you said in African cultures their mentality could be like oh like you said what even you experience in it about like oh they're not going to live long so they don't have it doesn't matter what they do and that that feeling for somebody like thinking that your life is not worth anything just because you have this condition and I love that you're you know spreading that awareness and making that impact in Africa because children it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter how long your life expectancy is like every single person born is is special and they have a purpose and I I I love that concept so much and I'm so like um I'm so happy to know you and honored because I think it's it's gonna what you're doing is amazing thank you and you as well we give it's it's beautiful because I kind of met you just around the time you set Gideon's treasure up mm-hmm. so I'm, I feel like I'm part of your journey as well oh yeah but, but definitely <laughs> I, well yeah so um I think I have to say it as well you've been you've been amazing I'm just oh, thinking okay. about to integrate creativity and fashion and and arts and bringing people together in a way that sees another part of it's quite niche in a way because no one's ever done or taken that approach that you yeah. have taken um so i have to also oh, commend you. Uh-huh. the work you've done and to to think about it from a sense of loss knowing that that was someone quite dear to mm, you your uncle, yeah and that into something that can help other people is inspirational oh it is. thank you and it's I think it's so true because there's so many different aspects and I think that that mental aspect of like for me it was like the creativity and fashion kind of was gave me kind of a purpose and I kind of was excited for the future instead of yeah. thinking like oh I'm just going to be in hospital all the time or what am I going to do with my life and so I think it does definitely intertwines with you kind of like you have a purpose and you can achieve anything. And I, I, I'm like, yes, I'm so for it. And that, that's another reason, even with the podcast, like I want to yeah. be able to sh- show people, like there are people really like thriving, sliving with sickle cell yeah. and you can slay, you can live your best life. You can do anything yeah. that you want to do. And, yeah. and thanks to people like you and other warriors out there that are really just pushing and not like allowing people to, allowing them to think oh I don't have a purpose or I can't do certain things because of this and so speaking about creativity um you're quite a creative person you've done poetry you've done artwork um and you're also a writer and author so please tell me about your creative journey and like kind of how it's kind of helped with managing your sickle cell if it does kind of bring joy or excitement or something Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, thank you. So um, it's it's been it's been a journey from like uh, being a child. Mm-hmm. Um, writing specifically is my passion, um, and I used to do a lot of diary work and journaling mm-hmm. and um, growing up. And then I sort of developed this love for poetry and trying to put my words into something that would. Um, almost uh, send a message about a particular subject or, mm-hmm. you know, an emotional exp- or an expression. So, um, yeah, I've, I, I've been writing poetry for a long time. I also write about some of my travel experiences. Mm. I used to own a blog um, and just about, like, the expression of art and how I um, translate messages, whether it's through um, a visit to a gallery and what I can hone from that expression yeah. of art or just watching a film and taking those messages out. So writing has always sort of been my catharsis mm-hmm. and I've journaled for a very long time. And then a few years ago, I came into contact with Julia Cameron, who mm. is a phenomenal woman. Mm. And I attended one of her conferences in London and she talked about her book, The Artist's Way mm-hmm. and the, the concept of uh, what what we call um, morning pages. So morning pages is a process of really just releasing first thing in the morning and being able to journal like free for, you know free flowing without yeah. stopping exactly how you feel. So I've done that for many mm-hmm. years now. Um, people always say what's the difference between that and journaling. It's it's different because journaling is like almost taking stock of your day mm-hmm. and how, what what you want to do and how you feel, but this is more of a cathartic process. Mm-hmm. Um, so through my journey, I have uh, published uh, three books, poetry mm. books, and hopefully one will be on the horizon this year or yeah. next. I <laughs> uh, um, yes, I find it very fulfilling in a way that I can, if there's a feeling that I'm expressing at the time, whether it's desire mm-hmm. or pain or um any sense of expression that I can put that into paper and people can actually connect with it. Yeah. Filments as well. But also I specifically um, do the project where I worked with um, my sister and Mm -hmm. a friend to um, use visual imagery using um, photography as an Mm -hmm. art of expression to talk about the unseen, invisible parts of sickle cell using actual warriors and portraits to tell a story. And I was so pleased and proud to have exhibited across two countries, uh, five exhibitions. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Yeah, so far. And it's been great because um, people have sort of asked what what was behind each portrait that story has been really incredible so for me just trying to almost awaken this awareness of what sickle cell means but in a more universal way mm-hmm. translating pain to yeah. be business because everyone feels pain whether it's yeah. emotional pain logical pain so pain is not just you know Physical, a very yeah. expression sickle cell or or something people with sickle feel, or just cancer patients, etc. Mm-hmm. Pain is, you know. So for me, I was trying to use that visual imagery to make people almost trigger their own sense of how do I deal with pain yeah. and how how do I show compassion to mm-hmm. someone 
I don't see. Yeah. Though these people look absolutely great, all of these amazing, beautiful warriors and the portraits, how can I then start to understand and be aware mm-hmm. of the person next to me and what they might be feeling on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So that was my whole sort of drive for That's that amazing. project. Yeah. Well, and uh, yeah, it's been, it's been, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lover. I'm a, I'm just a lover. <laughs> just, just get me it. It's just my comfort zone. But yeah, it's, it's always been a big part of my life mm-hmm. and a big part of being able to cope with my own pain and suffering. Yeah. So, um, yeah, art and travel for me. I love that. Yeah. I, I just love when people can express themselves in so many different mediums. I think that's the yeah. most exciting thing about like art and creativity. And I love yeah. that um, with that ex- your exhibition, how it started conversations. And I think mm-hmm. having that in different aspects, like in the art world and doing stuff mm-hmm. like that, you get to people who may not know about sickle cell or anything will come and see this and have questions and it opens up a conversation to talk about like your experiences and they learn from it and that's why I think it's so powerful it's such a powerful medium and I love your work um I'm so excited hopefully in the future we can collaborate on something (laughs) but definitely um (laughs) and um so please let me know what exciting projects you're currently working on and what your future Mm -hmm. goals are Oh, exciting project. So I'm trying to uh, put together a collection of poems, but I'm using mm-hmm. the Japanese model called the haiku. Some people say haikus or haikus, whatever mm-hmm. they want to call it. <laughs> um, so that's, that's, been, that's been ongoing for a year, knowing yeah. that I'm going to be working nine to, it's not nine to five these days, it's probably nine to <laughs> nine. So I'm do that at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also working to partner with our patron for mm-hmm. Fit to Achieve, see if we can um, commence a scholarship scheme for wow. some of the um, sickle cell mm-hmm. uh, benefits for Fit to Achieve. So that's the projects I'm looking forward to. Awesome. Um, there are lots of travel plans as well, so I'll be going away a lot this summer. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm looking forward to those. Um, other projects are very much sort of still very in their infant, you know. But yeah, lots of partnerships. Mm-hmm. Uh, still doing a lot of advocacy work, um, and hopefully, yeah, I can get more into that maybe this year or next because I've kind of had to pause on it for the last two years, mm-hmm. given that work has been quite intense. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Hopefully we'll, we'll watch this space and see what comes in. Yeah. yeah, it all sounds so exciting. And please, could you share like your social media, any links to poems where sure. we can purchase them and everything and how we can follow your yeah. journey? So Instagram um, at Ginny Penny and mm-hmm. that's my personal one. And for my um, foundation is at Fit to Achieve. So F-I-T-T-O achieve a c h i e v you can find me there and facebook um june okachi name and last name uh linkedin is the same um i'm not on snapchat or twitter 
So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, it's been a pleasure um, speaking with you. Thank you so much for sharing your incredible journey. We will definitely be continuing to follow you and um, know more about the exciting things that you're doing. And I would definitely love to say that you are slimming with Sickle Cell. And, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. but, yay, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Barbara. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I hope you will continue this journey with me. We will be discussing a lot of important topics and we'll have some incredible guest speakers joining to share their experiences. Please subscribe and like our Instagram pages, Atelier underscore Zimbabwe and Gideon underscore Treasure. Feel free to leave a comment, ask a question, and if you would like to be a guest speaker and share your story, please send me an email. Details in the episode description. Love you and God bless. Mwah.